Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Esther, chapter 9. And while you're turning, let me just explain why we're having a little departure from our chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse study through the Psalms. On Wednesday, uh, Israel celebrated the Feast of Purim. And the day before, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke before our Congress. Uh, To me, it was probably one of the most powerful and eloquent um, messages uh, that I've heard, at least in the political realm. And I'll comment more on that as we get into our study this morning. Then Wednesday being Purim itself, we usually take a break at Easter time and on Good Friday from our study through the scriptures, and we'll talk about Good Friday. Or on Easter Sunday, we'll we'll go there. On Christmas time, we talk about the wise men or the Christmas story uh, because there are holidays. Well, in Israel, Purim is one of the nine feasts, and uh, we're going to uh, just take this morning and, and actually go through the entire book. Obviously, we won't be able to get in depth uh, as much as we would on a Wednesday evening. But on Wednesday, we got through the first six chapters. So let's go to our text where Pastor Lane was reading. Um, chapter 9, verse 26, is a summary of the book itself. It says, so they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, that the members of them should not perish among their descendants. And then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. Let's make our way back to chapter 1. And um, let me just give you an overview of what Purim is. It's actually pronounced Purim, and it marks the deliverance of the Jews through the Jewish Queen Esther in Sushan, Persia. Uh, Today, that is modern-day Iran, which we're going to find very interesting as the study progresses. Esther was her Persian name, which means star. Her Hebrew name was actually Hadassah. Isn't that a beautiful name? Hadassah. It means myrtle. Uh, the annual celebration of Purim is a joyous and a very festive remembering the foiled plot of Haman to kill the Jews living within King Xerxes. He's also going to be called here Ahasuerus and, and during his kingdom. The word Purim itself actually means lot, to cast a lot. And it refers to the lot that Haman cast to decide the day for the destruction of the Jewish people. That's in Esther 3, verse 7. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but his providence and provision are clearly obvious. Purim is a happy and a noisy holiday. To celebrate the Megillah, the Megillah is a scroll of the book of Esther, It is read in the synagogue. Now I'm going to stop right there. The scroll that I hold in my hands, I've had it for 20 years. I don't don't know who gave it to me. I don't remember. But um, we had uh, a cantor. A cantor is a step below a rabbi. Come and teach here, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And his name is Jeff. And he was serving at the synagogue here in Appleton. And um, teaching those who wanted to Hebrew. And uh, he was up in my office one day, and uh, I thought, wow, I got somebody who can read Hebrew here. I was always curious what this was. I didn't know. But it's an old scroll, and it's burnt a little bit here. That's why it can't be used in, uh, in the reading. And he took a look at it. He looked at it for about, oh, 20 seconds, and he said, you got a copy of the book of Esther. 
And so um, I thought I would bring it and show it off a little bit this morning because in the synagogues this week, what they would be doing is exactly what we're doing this morning. We're going to go through the book of Esther. Now, when they would read it in their synagogues, whenever Haman is mentioned, everyone boos. And they stomp their feet and they have these noisemakers called grogglers. But whenever Mordecai is mentioned, then everybody cheers. I'm going to ask you not to do that this morning. (laughs) The Bible says decently and in order, right? (laughs) Well, I called uh, David Frank, uh, who we're working with now with our tour to Israel this last week, just to get some numbers and facts straight. I know Lundy, his wife, they have twin girls that are kind of young. And I said, so how are the twins doing? And she says, oh, we're getting them all dressed up for Purim where they're painting their faces. And it's a big, joyous celebration because it commemorates um, and turned around a plot to destroy all the Jews that were in ancient Persia in one, in one particular day. So with that much of an, uh, an overview, um, there's some very interesting parallels between Esther's time and Haman. And if we go forward in history from there, in my father's time during World War II, of course, we had Adolf Hitler as a type of Haman. And he called for the extinction and the annihilation of the Jewish people. And then in our time, let's go up to our generation. Again, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking before our Congress, uh, uh, made reference to Esther as he stood there, saying the time has come once again. And this guy laid out one of the clearest and articulate and powerful and passionate presentations for his people and what's really going on in the world. And just basically saying his whole reason for coming here is to once again stand in the gap like a Mordecai or an Esther and speak on behalf of his people Israel because there are people out there in Iran, ancient Persia, who still call for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Our Secretary Kerry was out of state meeting with European members trying to make a deal with Iran while Bibi, that's what they call him in Israel, was was in our Parliament. So here it is in our time. Um, I like to say, what did he say? The enemy of your enemy is your enemy. <laughs> and he also said, never again. And then he drew a line in the sand. For those of you, I'm just curious, how many of you actually saw this? A good, a good number of you. Good. I'm glad you did. Um, He said, for the first time in 2,500 years, we can take care of ourselves. And and they can. And then he got the biggest round of applause. He says, but I know we won't stand alone because I know that our good friends, the United States of America, is going to stand with us. I think he was extremely gracious to President Obama. For the first 10 minutes of his speech, he spoke nothing but kind and gracious words words to President Obama. I would not have been as gracious. He was completely snubbed. Uh, He said he didn't even listen to the speech. And uh, yet, it's interesting, not having listened to the speech, he sure had a lot to say about it or something he hadn't listened to. He was watching. But it was, of course, a direct insult, and um, that's just the way the Jewish people are. And this particular prime minister... Um, but he also has to stand in the gap for his people. And again, we have in Esther's time, Haman, in my dad's time, Hitler, and in our time, the Ayatollahs that are calling for the destruction of the nation of Israel. With that being said, let's turn to chapter 1. And I'm going to summarize the chapters as we go through. Chapter 1 primarily is an introduction that tells us where we're at, we're in um, Persia. Uh, the king's name here is Ahasuerus, but 
That's really just a title. His real name is Xerxes. And so King Xerxes, he's called King Ahasuerus here, sort of like having a title like Caesar, uh, Augustus Caesar. Uh, this would be the, the title that he had. And he was in Sushan, which is in Persia. And basically it says in verse 4 that for 180 days he's throwing this huge party only to have the last seven days be the culmination of it and even making it grander and greater than the first 186. And he's flipping the bill for this whole thing. And um, in verse 8, it, he just turned everybody loose and uh, it says that each household could do according to each man's pleasure. And so it was a full-on party that he was having. Well, after seven days of this drinking wine, um, the king decides he's going to show off his queen. Her name is Vashti, but she's having her own party. And uh, he calls for her to come, and um, she refuses uh, to be brought in before the king. Um, Verse 12 Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command brought by, by the eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. He's already had too much wine. He's hot under the collar. And, um, but the other men from these 127 provinces says, King, we have a problem. If she doesn't come when you called her, our wives are watching what's going on here, and we're going to have this problem repeated unless you do something about it. And we got a suggestion. Our suggestion is this, that verse 19, I think it's time to make a royal decree to go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be altered. Now, this is important. That verse right here is important for our study of God's word this morning. The difference between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Ahasuerus is if King Nebuchadnezzar made a command and he decided to change his mind, he had the authority to do so. He was an absolute world leader dictator. Different with the Medes and the Persians because once he signs a law, he couldn't retract it himself. So what, uh, according, don't let it be altered, that Vashti uh, can't come before the king anymore and give her position to somebody else. That's basically... Chapter 1 of uh, Vashti snubbing the king, and she uh, has this decree that cannot be changed, and uh, she's basically banished. Now, between chapters 1 and 2 is a time of four years that goes by. It's not recorded for us in the scriptures, so let me read a little bit of history, just a paragraph, to let you know what went on. Um, I watched the movie, The 300, this week. It just happened to be on. And what I'm about to tell you is that time in history, this particular battle that took place at uh, Theophily, um, is about what happened between chapters 1 and 2. So we have to turn to secular history for the campaign of Xerxes against the Greeks, since the Bible gives us no record of this campaign. Xerxes led a great army against the Greeks. The secret to the strength of the Persians were their sheer numbers. But an individual Persian soldier was not as well trained as a Greek soldier. The Greeks emphasized the individual, and as a result, one Greek soldier could take on ten Persians. So, at the Battle of Thermopylae, only a few men could get into the narrow pass. And as a result, the Greeks won a significant victory over the Persian army. It was an unfortunate defeat for Xerxes, but God was overruling. The power was about to pass from Persia to Greece. I'm going to do a little sidetrack here, because what I find interesting is here you have one battle, and now we're going to have a whole transition because of one war. Maybe some of you saw the 300. Um, I I happened to catch it on one of the stations this week. If you haven't, it's a great movie, and they actually call Xerxes by name in the movie. Um, I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah 37, and then also 
put your finger in Daniel chapter five, but let's go to Isaiah 37 first of all. We were here a couple weeks ago on men's prayer. The setting is the power of the world at this time is Assyria. And they're coming against Israel. Um, They've already taken the 10 northern tribes. And now Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has Jerusalem surrounded with 185,000 men. Hezekiah comes to him and says, Isaiah, I don't want you to worry about this. Not one arrow is going to make it into the city. And I don't want you to fear. Um, He did fear. One of the things, uh, for those of you who have been to Israel, maybe you've walked Hezekiah's tunnel. Well, the reason that was built is to have a water supply because when the Assyrians lay siege, they cut off your water supplies, try to starve you out. Or in this case, give you no water. That's why there is Hezekiah's tunnel. It was, a, it was something they never had to do. Because in verse 36, it says, the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the, the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there they all were, dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria departed, and he went home, and we're told here that in verse 38 that he was uh, worshiping his God and his son struck him with a sword and he died. What's your point, Dwight? Well, it was just one battle that caused the whole, imagine your entire army and the king being wiped out. You have now the demise of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And in the next couple chapters, it talks about um, um, Hezekiah's sin. He was, the Lord said, I'm going to take you home, Hezekiah. And uh, he pouted and said, Lord, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And he says, I'll give, you, I'll give you 15 more years. Nothing good happened in those 15 years. Two things happened. Manasseh was born, the worst king Israel ever had. And the Babylonians came down to wish him well after he heard he was healed. And he showed him all the riches that were in the temple. And Isaiah said, "Uh uh-oh, should have done that. Uh, And then he prophesies in verse 39, chapter 39, and he says, because you did this, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and in your father's house that you've accumulated shall uh, be given to, to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And of course, we're talking about King Nebuchadnezzar coming against um, Babylon and taking Daniel. And as we're going to find out, Mordecai went at the same time. All right, so with that much, there's one example. Let's go to uh, Daniel chapter 5. So we have a change in power because of one night, one angel. It's interesting that Babylon, the next empire, also is going to change from being the world empire, and in one night, it's going to completely fall into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. If you're in Daniel chapter 5, I'll draw your attention to verse um, 25. Uh, The Medo-Persian army under Darius, is surrounding the city. They have absolutely no fear at all, the Babylonians. And the walls are 300 feet tall, the tower's 450 feet, no way of getting in. And so they're having this big party. What they didn't know that Darius had done is a mile upstream he had diverted the Euphrates River and he lowered it just enough so that they went under the walls, and they basically, you could say, they took the city without firing a shot. While they were partying, we had this famous scene that everybody who studied Daniel is very, very familiar with, and that is the famous writing on the wall. They were mocking God by drinking out of these golden vessels from the temple. And the hand comes out, begins to write, many, many, tekel, Eupharsin on the wall. Nobody knew what it meant. They call for Daniel. Daniel comes in, says, I'll tell you what it means. Many means God has numbered your kingdom and it's finished. Tekel 
you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, which brings us up to Esther's time. Then Belshazzar gave a command, clothed Daniel with purple, and proclaimed that uh, he should be given a third of the kingdom. But that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now, the reason I bring this up, let's make our way back to chapter 1 of Esther. So between 1 and 2, we have this battle that was really a battle that demoralized, and we're now watching the decline of the Medo-Persians between 1 and 2, and now we have the rise of the Grecian, which would be under Alexander the Great. Everybody with me so far? Okay, good. Let's go. Chapter 2, if I would summarize um, chapter 2, we have, we're introduced to the, the main characters in verse 5, and that would be Mordecai. Verse 5 says, Mordecai um, was a Benjaminite, and it says that he was carried away from Jerusalem with the captives. Well, that reminds me of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he's been in, in uh, Babylon all the way through the Babylonian reign, and now Darius, remember the Mede was there, and now it's Ahasuerus, but this is now still Medo-Persian. So he's been there a long time. He's got to be at least in his 80s. And um, then we're introduced to the other main uh, character, which is Esther herself. Now Esther's parents were killed, and this is his uncle's daughter. And we read here that she was lovely and beautiful in verse 7. And that when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And um, the rest of chapter 2 is going throughout the province and gathering all the beautiful gals. I mean, we're talking a beauty pageant here, Miss America. And uh, they're all contestants. And there's only going to be one judge, and that's going to be a Ahasuerus. So much of this we got into more detail, months and months of, of pampering them and uh, bathing them in precious oils and just to make them look pretty. Verse 17, after, when all is said and done, it says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace. Now remember that, she obtained grace. And I'll come back to that and found favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so she, he set the royal crown upon her head, and she became queen instead of Ashtai. It's not the end of the, story, end of the chapter, because there's a whole change of thought if you look at 21, 22, and 23. The king's happy. He's got a beautiful bride. And in those days, Mordecai sat within the king's gate, and two of the king's eunuchs, Bechthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on the king. In other words, they wanted to take him out. We got a plot, a mutiny on, uh, on, on his hands. But the matter was made known to Mordecai. And Uncle Mordecai goes and tells the queen, who tells the king, hey, you got a couple doorkeepers here, and I want to take you out. Verse 23 said, he looked into it, it was confirmed, And he had him hung on the gallows, and it's written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, this is important to remember, that this was written down, and we're going to come back to this here. Okay, number three, we're introduced to Snidely Whiplash, otherwise known as Haman. Boo, boo. Okay, what's interesting here, it tells us his nationality. He was an Agagite from King Agag, from the Amalekites. Uh, if you were here on Wednesday evening, we actually did a sidetrack here, went back to 1 Samuel 15. And Saul's disobedience, the Lord said, Saul, I want you to go wipe out all the Amalekites. They, they attacked you in the wilderness wanderings. And I don't want any of them left, not one. Man, women, children, cattle, do them in. Why would the Lord make such a re- Quest, you wonder. Well, maybe he was thinking ahead to the time of Esther when we still got some Agites still around who want to destroy all the Jewish people. 
That's just one possibility. Anyway, Saul was rejected as king because of his disobedience. David took his place. But Haman here, he gets promoted to prime minister, or to, um, let's, let's say, secretary of state, a very, very high, important position. And uh, now everybody's bowing down to him. He's getting a really big head. And everybody is showing him homage. But when you get to verse 5, it says, And Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow homage. Haman was filled with wrath. But he did not lay hold on Mordecai because he was told of the people of, that there's not just one of these guys that won't bow down to you. you got a whole 127 provinces that are filled with these Jews. Now, Uncle Mordecai had instructed Esther, don't let them know your nationality. And here, um, it's found out, Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember when um, they were told to bow down to the golden image? They said, no way, Jose, not gonna happen, can't do it. They stuck up, they sore thumbs. Well, Mordecai wouldn't do it either, but none of the real Jews would. They would only bow to the Lord, their God. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? So now he has it in, and he seeks that how he, he wants now to kill all of them, and he has authority. And so what he does in the rest of the chapter is he makes this plot. We get the word Purim from verse 7 in this chapter. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. In parentheses, it says that is the lot. So the name Purim comes from casting a lot that would determine a time and a month when these people would be killed. Well, he has to get the decree from the king because only the king can make such a decree. So he goes into Ahasuerus and he says, you know, we got these Jews and uh, they don't pay you homage. They don't honor, respect our laws. I say get rid of them. And if you let me do that, verse 9 says, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver into the hands for the guys to get the job done. And at this time, Ahasuerus is really indifferent. He's probably trusting like we do with... uh, we have ambassadors in country to give us the information. And he has his own business to do, so he just goes along with it. He says, Haman, verse 10, here's my ring. That's the authority. Go ahead, write up whatever you want to. Get rid of them any way you want to. And um, this comes back now to once this is done, it cannot be overturned. So Haman writes the decree on a certain day, On a certain month, every Jew will be killed. Verse 14 says, a copy of the document was sent by courier and haste was given to make this decree and um, to all the provinces so they all get it at the same time. Um, And he sat down to drink, it says, but the city of Sushan was perplexed. What's up with this? Why would he just be calling for the killing and the annihilation of all the Jews? People just weren't getting it. All right. Uh, Chapter, I should say at this time, you know, every Haman was not the only uh, hater of uh, Mordecai. Obviously, there's more going on behind the scenes here. And it should be obvious to all of us that this is satanic. Amen? So what's really going on here behind the scenes is the power of Satan himself uh, who really wants to, just as much as Hitler was demonic in his time, so are the Iranian clerics today by calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Chapter 4 has one of the most memorable verses in the Bible. Leading up to it, Mordecai finally reads the edict for himself. And he realizes that he was the one that wouldn't bow down. And he knows that this law can't and won't be changed. It's been made. Once the law is made, it's made. It sinks in, 
In verse 3, he finds himself fasting, weeping, and wailing in sackcloth. And um, he doesn't know what to do. Esther hears about it. She tries to comfort him. But he goes to her, and he says, Esther, um, well, let's just read it. The edict has been given. You're the queen, and the king doesn't know that you're a Jew. It's time to come out of the closet, and we have to tell him, because you're the only hope we have. And she says, I can't. If I do that, and I go in unannounced, he hasn't called for me for the last 30 days, and I go in, and if he doesn't hold out that golden scepter, they're going to kill me. And this is, this is what Mordecai says to her in verse, let's read it in verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than any other Jew. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father, you will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom, and here it is, for such a time as this. Esther, how do you know that the Lord didn't make you so beautiful, that you would be so desirable that one day uh, the king is going to dismiss Vashti and uh, they're going to discover your beauty. The king's going to fall in love with you. And how do you know that God didn't give you that beauty? And he's, what he's saying, he put you in this place at this time and this is your moment for such a time as this. And Mordecai, after Esther hears this, she says, all right, I'll do it. You go tell all the people in your house to pray and fast for the next three days. We'll do the same here. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. We could really get sidetracked here with an application. But, you know, you never know what a day is going to bring. You never know that all the circumstances in your life can't be funneling down to a certain moment and a certain time and a certain place. And the Lord says, I want to use you right now, and I've been preparing you for this moment your whole life. And you may not even know it. And uh, for her, she gets the credit. The Feast of Purim, the little girls, when they dress them up, they dress them up to look like Esther. She could have said no, but what did Mordecai say? Well, if you say no, then the Lord will use somebody else and they'll get the uh, reward for doing it. Just an encouragement. Um, (laughs) Chuck always used to say, Lord, here are my plans for the day. I give you permission to interrupt them anytime you want to. And uh, if you got something where you want to pull me out of your toolbox for any issue, then I'm available. Question, are you available today to go with the flow? Whatever might come to be instant in season right on a spot. So here I am, Lord. I'll do it. Use me. Well, that's what she does. Chapter 5. Esther before King Ahasuerus is accepted. Um, She's got to go stand before him now. I can see him in this unbelievably plush royal courtroom that he's in, probably doing the affairs, the royal house, the royal throne. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eyes, there's, there's uh, Esther, and she has not been summoned and hadn't been for 30 days. And one of two things is going to happen. He's going to hold out the golden scepter, or she'll be killed. No in between. And she knows it all too well. But as soon as the king notices her, in verse... Um, Two here, the king uh, holds out the scepter and Esther comes up and touches the top of the, uh, the scepter. Not only was he glad to see her, but he knows she's there for, she wants something. So he comes around and he says, what's your request? What do you want? I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. It's yours, honey, take it. And Esther answered, well, if it pleases the king, uh, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly. 
that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Hey, that's a great day for Haman. And in verse nine, when he's going home after punching out at four or five, it said nine, he went out that day, he was joyful, he was glad of heart. Man, I'm secretary of state and I'm dining with the king and the queen and just me. And so he's floating on cloud nine as he's going home, that is until he sees Mordecai. And when he saw Mordecai, um, he says in verse 13, yet he's telling his wife in the great day that he had, he says, yet all that means nothing to me as long as that Jew, Mordecai, is still around. And his wife said, are you secretary of state or not? Take the guy out. I mean, make some gallows, hang him, and then go to your banquet tomorrow. And that's exactly what he did. So he had the gallows made. That's the end of chapter five. Chapter six, interesting how the Lord works with divine appointments. And something that had happened in the past happened for a reason. And now, it's been some time, and the first three verses of chapter six, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. And he says, somebody bring me some history books of the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians. And then they said, as they were reading, they found that Begathan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, wanted to kill the king, but uh, there was this guy named Mordecai who told Esther, and the plot was foiled, and he, the king says, really? Well, what, what did I ever do for him? He saved my neck. Did we uh, say thank you? Uh, did I give him some money? Is he still around? And uh, basically, they said in verse three, nothing has been done for him. Well, the king says, I'm gonna take care of that. Um, go find somebody. that uh, uh, See who's out, outside on the next door and, who's, and have him come in here at once. And uh, verse four, that's what it says. Who's in the court? And they look out there, and the only guy out there is Haman. And they said, well, bring Haman in here. And uh, he comes in before the king, and he says, Haman, I got a question for you. What should be done to the guy that the king wants to honor? Now, if you're Haman, what are you thinking? Huh, I'm having supper with the queen and the king. He's got me in mind, obviously. Well, this is what I think should be done. I think you should give him one of your royal robes. I think you should put it on him. I think you should get a horse, one of your horses, king, and uh, put him on it and take the robe and the horse and, and um, parade him around the city and have some guy out in front saying, this is what the king's gonna do to the man that he wants to honor. And he says, that sounds like a great idea, Haman. Um, I want you to go find Mordecai and um, seeing that you're the only guy around here, I want you to put him on the horse. I want you to lead him around town and I want you to say this is what the king will do to the man he wants to honor. Talk about a bad day. So he has to go home after choking on every word, I'm sure. Uh, And he's telling his family what had happened verse 14 while he was still talking the eunuchs came and says have you forgot you're you're supposed to have supper with the king and queen let's get going so chapter 7 is a second feast and the king I don't think he's getting frustrated but he basically says to Esther okay out with it you had this little get together yesterday with me and him and now we're here so we read uh, uh, verse two, what's your request? And it's done. I'm, I'm half the kingdom is yours, honey. You just ask, tell me what you want. And she says, well, if it please the king, and if I found favor in your sight, um, what I'm asking you to do is, is not kill me, honey, um, because there's this petition against me and my people. You see, I'm Jewish, and I've been sold. He said, and they, your edict is to destroy and kill, and your laws cannot be overturned. And uh, if, at, if I would have been sold as a slave or something like that, I wouldn't be saying anything right now. But we're talking about my life. 
And Ahasuerus can't believe his ears. He says, who is this, in verse 5? And where is he, and who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And without meeting a, missing a beat, Esther goes, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked guy Haman standing right next to you. Can you imagine how bad his day got at that moment? And so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king was so ticked and so mad, he didn't know what to do, so he leaves the building to vent his anger. And while he's gone, Haman is on his knees, begging for his life to Esther, somehow trips and lands on top of her while she's on her couch, and that just happened to be the moment that the king decided to walk back into the room. So now he's laying on top of her. That's what it says. The Bible's very specific. And uh, the king arose with wrath, and he said, um, let's see, that verse is, when the king returned, verse 8, from the palace, garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was, and the king says, are you going to rape her too? Well, I'm in my own house. And as the words left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. And um, he wants to hang him. And somebody says, look, there's these gallows outside that Haman built to hang Mordecai on. And the king used those um, barracks, those gallows, and Haman was hanged. So the one who wanted to kill the Jews was killed himself. A lot has happened between the first and second service. It was daylight savings time yesterday, and I, was, I had a great time with uh, the Calvary Chapel pastors. We met in Wisconsin Rapids. Beautiful day, nice drive, four hours of fellowship. It was great. And, um, but that meant when I got home, I was tired, didn't feel like studying. And I knew it's daylight saving time, springing ahead, and I knew I had to get up even earlier <laughs> to finish my notes. So I'm up you know, early enough to have a good couple hours of study. And, and what happened was, you know, I heard that the um, um, uh, Ayatollah had gone and become ill the day after Purim. So Tuesday, Benjamin Netanyahu is addressing Congress. Wednesday is Purim. And now the leader of Iran, who still wants to kill the Jews, I googled it at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it said that the Iranian supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is the way it's pronounced, died five hours ago. That's what I heard. And that's what I told the first service. Now, what happens is, I'm glad there's two services sometimes. (laughs) I'm glad there's two services all the time. It was only a rumor, even though it was put out by an Israeli news source. And, but I, I, I just used it, this is gonna work great into my message. <laughs> and, uh, cause it's turning the tables, and instead of, of uh, the Jews being killed, uh, between services, we kept Googling it, and it came up, and they got a, sh- a shot of them being alive. But they, his organs were shutting down a couple of days earlier. So I need to correct myself. He is not dead, as I implied in the first service. And um, this will be the one that gets on the internet and not uh, the other one. <laughs> I'll be called out for sure. And I should have I paraphrased it because there was reports that it could be just a rumor. And I, I, I did not mention that in the first service. All right. Let's, where, where we were, we were in Iran, Israel, and, and uh, Purim. Chapter 8, now the property that belonged to Haman is given to Mordecai. Uh, Esther petitions King Ahasuerus 
because his edict can't be changed. Remember, the law is the law, and it can't be broken. And uh, the date is approaching. So Esther, in chapter 8, basically goes in and asks for a second letter to be written. And he basically, the, the day is the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And so what he did for Mordecai, or for Haman, he does for Mordecai. He takes off his ring. He says, go ahead, you write it. You write whatever you want. And then you send it to all the 127 provinces. And basically what he wrote is on verse 12, on the 13th day of Adar, when they come to kill you, you have every right to protect yourself and you have every right to kill anybody that wants to kill you. And that's exactly what was signed. The first law is still in effect. Is everybody with me? And this is going to be important in our study. The first law can't be changed. So what had to happen is another law was written, but that was also, that one can't be changed. Uh, The first law said the Jews must die. The second law says they can defend themselves and kill anybody that tries to kill them. And so what we have is... Let's pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 8. Mordecai went out from the presence of the, of the king. Uh, he was arrayed in purple and white and had a golden crown and garments of fine linen and purple. And, this, and the city of Sushan was full of joy and gladness with this new letter. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, whenever the king's command and decree came, The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because of the fear of the Jews that fell upon them. Instead of Jews dying, there's actually more Jews now that converted because of the the edict of the king. And um, in chapter 9, I want to go down to actually the number of people that die, but I'm especially interested in verse 10 where we find um, that on this day, the 13th of Adar, verse 10, it says that Haman had 10 sons and they were killed and uh, they were hung. And it's interesting as we go through history that now I'll read this um, because two th- more than 2,000 years later, there were 10 top Nazi officials that were hung at the Nuremberg trials. Isn't that interesting? Incredibly, the Hebrew year of the hanging at Nuremberg was 5707, is encoded in the book of Esther in the listing of Haman's 10 sons. Three Hebrew letters, T-A-F, Zen, S-H-I-N, and Zayin, Z-A-Y-I-N, representing the year 5707, are written unusually small. Uh, This anomaly appears in every authentic scroll, like the one I showed you earlier, written that way over 2,000 years ago. The last one to get hung, his name was, he was a Nazi, Julius Stryker, he ascended the gallows at Nuremberg and he shouted, Purim Fest, 1946. So he knew the book of Esther. And uh, uh, he is recounting, verse 16 tells us that 75,000 people of the enemies of the Jews were killed. And then it makes mentions, but they weren't interested in any of their possessions. And so that brings us to our text. Like I told the first service as I look at my clock, oh, they fixed it. I thought I had a whole extra hour now. Oh, I'm almost done. (laughs) I am almost done. But we have got to to our text, which now is basically saying everything that's just happened, what the Jewish people do on this day is they take out the book of Esther and they go through the whole thing. We've just done that. And then basically in our text, it tells us that this is to be commemorated. Now remember, the Jews are God's chosen people. 
We're grafted into them. They're not grafted into us. God has a plan for Israel, and he's not done with it. And he's going to work with them again. And, yes, even though the Ayatollah isn't dead, the negotiations, as they stand right now, is they will have the bomb within a year to ten years. This last week, Saudi Arabia is just as concerned as Israel and has allowed Israel to fly over Saudi Arabian airspace if they want to take out Iran. And if you, weren't, if you didn't hear the speech that Bibi gave, he says, for the first time in 2,500 years, we can defend ourselves. He says, but I don't think we, the biggest applause during the speech, he says, but I don't think we stand alone. I think the United States of America is still Israel's friend, and they're going to stand with us. And again, I mentioned earlier, he was very, very gracious. But he also at the same time said, um, we remember the Holocaust. And he pointed up in a crowd. He said, you see that 91-year-old man up there? He's a Holocaust survivor. And he says, we don't forget that. It'll never happen again. And uh, everybody knows Israel has the bomb. And uh, if they're threatened, and you don't think for a second uh, they're going to let the Holocaust happen again? No. He's prime minister. Good one. And he's looking out for his people. And he wanted the United States of America to know, we'll go alone if we have to. Don't, don't want to, but we will if we have to. So in my dad's time, it was Hitler. In Esther's time, it was Haman. In our time, isn't it interesting that Persia is modern-day Iran. Dave Hawking was speaking last week. He was asked this question on Standing Up for the Truth. And the question was about Ezekiel 38 and who's Gog and Magog and Meshach and Tubal and so on and so forth. He says, oh, that's easy, that's Russia. He says, what's more interesting to me because of of, uh, Bibi's speech is that he made reference to Esther in Purim. And the next country that comes against and attacks Israel, we call it the Ezekiel 38 War, the first one mentioned is Iran. Modern day, it just 80 years ago, it was still called Persia. And they changed the name to Iran. So the very same people that wanted to do it then, here it is all these years later, and uh, it's the same country. And... Um, Gang, I'm saying that the, the Lord's coming is soon. There are, land, there are signs that are so obvious and clear right now. Anything could trip the trigger for Israel to go into action. Anything could trip the trigger for Isaiah 17.1 to be fulfilled. That's the destruction of Damascus, where Assad is. And the fact that the Saudis are so concerned, they're willing to side with Israel, well, that ties into Ezekiel 38 too, because when the Ezekiel 38 war happens, it lists all the countries, but it also lists Sheba and Dedan. That's Saudi Arabia. They're not involved in the war. They're standing along the sidelines saying, have you guys come down to take a spoil? What does Saudi Arabia have that Russia wants? Oil, a lot of it. And they just had a change in leadership there too. And we're protecting them, and um, so now is Israel. Let me make the application. There's so many, I wish that the gospel, you know, when Jesus said the volume of the book is all about me, the gospel is all over this book. And it would be a study within itself to do it. For I didn't mention this in the first service, but I'll do it in a second. It's interesting to note here, when you, when you the mention, go back to the chapter one, it mentions these wise men in verse 13, who understood the times. So you have wise men in Persia who understood the times. Now, how did they know the times? Well, remember Daniel? Daniel knew the times, and these wise men had been taught by Daniel. Who came to Jesus when he was two years old in Bethlehem? Well, they were who? The Magi, the wise men. Uh, From where did they come? Persia. 
These wise men who visited Jesus knew when the Messiah was to be born. They knew the times. And Jesus, we read in Daniel, says those who are wise in the last days, they'll get it, they'll understand. And there'll be those who are foolish who won't. Jesus refers us back to Daniel when we're told to be watching. Watching for what? There's signposts all over right now when it comes to the the story of Esther. And it's repeating itself. I'll close it up with um, um, a commentator who just lays out the gospel very simply here with this story. What a picture we have in this book. I have been emphasizing the law of the Medes and the Persians and comparing their law to the law of God. God's law says the soul that sins will surely die. That's the law. If you sin, you're going to be judged and you're going to die. And friends, God can never change his mind. It's the word of God. It can't be altered. It cannot be broken. Like the Medes and the Persian, once it's said, it has to be fulfilled. God's law is unchangeable. He could not change that without changing his very nature and his character. There's another side to the story. We see that in holding out the scepter to to Esther, uh, Queen Esther, Queen Esther, the king was giving her her life. What did she find when she was in his presence? Remember? I told you to remember. She found grace. Yeah. So as Esther was shown grace, may I say to you, God holds out the scepter to mankind today. It's true. We've all sinned. It's true. We've all come short of the glory of God. It is true that we are dead in trespasses in sin. But you see, God had to overcome that tremendous law. The law had to be kept. So what did Jesus say? Don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't. It can't be changed. I actually came to fulfill it. What does that mean? Well, the law says you can't steal, can't tell a lie, can't bear false witness. Strike one for me on the first one, strike two on the second one, strike three, I'm out. That's just three of them. All of those Jesus lived out. For 33 years, he lived the perfect life. Never thought a lustful thought, never stole, only went around doing good. And he completely fulfilled the law. And it had to be fulfilled. And, uh, and as a result, he qualifies himself to be the penalty for our sin so that he actually intercedes for us. Somebody had to pay the penalty for my sins, for your sins. And it was our good shepherd that extends grace to you today just as Ahasuerus held out. And uh, she was afraid. I don't know if I should go in there or not. You know, people are afraid of God today. A lot of them are. They don't know how much he loves them. Their thinking is, man, one more mess up, I'm squished like a little ant. That's not it at all. Just as the king loved the queen, he loves you guys so much. And all he's saying is come boldly before the throne. Scepter's out there. All you gotta do is touch it. All you gotta do is receive it. And um, uh, you'll inherit the kingdom. That's what the, the scriptures teach, that we have this inheritance that's gonna be revealed uh, in, in the times to come. God wants to use you. And you never know when that moment comes and you can, you can say, you know what, we just studied Esther. And maybe I think we're having a, for such a time as this moment. That might happen this week in your life. You never know when it might happen. The question is, are you willing to go for it when it does? It might take some fasting, might take some prayer, all the above. But what I see here is just a willing heart. And if you have that willing heart, the Lord will be able to pull you out of that toolbox and use you. He's got, a, he's got his plan all worked out. And if you say no, then, like it says in the scripture, she'll just find another person where you could get the credit for it and, uh, and on your account in heaven where Esther gets the account here. Amen? We'll leave it at that. Let's stand and we'll close with the words of prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for the book of Esther. As um, the Jewish people around the world on their s- Sabbath are taking out the scroll and reading
the story of Purim and how you turn the tables on Israel's enemy. Lord, we pray for Benjamin Netanyahu. I pray for the Jewish people. I pray for those that are enemies of the Jewish people. I pray that you'd save many of them. But those who are hell-bent on destroying your people, your word teaches us that you can turn the tables just as you turn the tables on Haman when he sought to kill Mordecai. Actually, he was hung on his own gallows. So Lord, thank you for your word. Bless your people as we go out this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.